Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Wednesday, October the 28th. Today, what our cell phone data can tell us about how well we're doing when it comes to social distancing during the pandemic, and how one of Canada's premier toy makers has invented a game-changing, reusable, and recyclable face mask. But first, if you Google Judge Tells, the number one search that comes up on Google is Judge Tells Victim to Close Legs. Remember that story? New Jersey judge told a woman who said she was raped that she should have tried to close her legs to prevent the assault. Uh, And I think it was just a shocking thing. And many people found it hard to believe that a judge would actually say something like that. But that brings me directly to this story. It's a Canadian story where, you know, many people that represent sexually assaulted individuals say that judges need to be more sensitive Uh, They need uh, further training when it comes to sex assault cases. So our MPs have amended a a bill that requires sexual assault training for federally appointed judges. And it has since been amended to include training on systemic racism or systemic discrimination. We're having a lot of conversations about both of those subjects recently. And this seems to be well-intentioned, this amendment to extend it to uh, systemic racism and systemic discrimination. But there are some experts that say this is a troubling sign of things to come. Gib Van Ert is a lawyer who formerly was executive legal officer at the Supreme Court of Canada from 2015 to 2018. And he joins the show now. Gib, welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you help us make sense? Because this sounds like it's a well-intentioned amendment. What, what What is the problem with this amendment in your mind? Well, it's absolutely right that it's well-intentioned, and I think the way you started off is uh, is the right perspective. Uh, when this idea was first floated, it was from Rona Ambrose, who was a Conservative MP at the time, and it was in response to the Robin Camp affair that I'm sure listeners will remember from a few years ago, where we had another one of those sexual assault trials that really went horribly off the rails, and people responded uh, very commendably by being shocked and looking for a solution and saying, how can, uh, how can a sexual assault trial be treated uh, so unprofessionally and how can it go so badly wrong? So people went looking for solutions. And Ms. Ambrose uh, came up with a bill uh, which would try to address that by imposing new training on judges about sexual assault. And that part, I just want to be very clear, it's not controversial that judges should have training about sexual assault. It's not even controversial that they should have training about systemic discrimination or other issues. Judges in this country have been taking training and giving themselves training for decades. The question is, who gets to set the reading list? Who gets to set the curriculum? It's always been the judges themselves in the past. We started uh, judicial training back in the mid-1980s, It was the judges themselves that started it with a modest amount of funding from the government. And since then, we've had in in this organization called the National Judicial Institute, one of the best training programs for judges in the world. Uh, But the judges lead it. The judges decide what needs uh, improvement, what needs work, and they direct themselves on it. Uh, Now, what this bill would do is allow Parliament to say, here's the reading list, judges. Here's what you've got to learn. And that reading list can be amended, added to, corrected, changed, 
whenever Parliament feels like it. And, and that's the issue. It's not a question of whether judges should have training. Judges want training. Nobody wants to be the next Robin Camp making a mess of a sexual assault trial. But how can judges set training if they possibly are in the dark themselves, if they've never dealt with a sex assault themselves, if they can't relate to it, if they're not experts in sexual assault or even systemic racism, if you're talking about somebody who's a white male? So judges actually have made themselves experts in these things through the National Judicial Institute. This training started in the early 1990s. It was called social context training. It's still called that today. And it includes things like discrimination, uh, poverty issues, indigenous issues, uh, gender issues, especially sexual assault. Uh, Look, judges are people like the rest of us, and they have the same concerns that animate the rest of us. You know, uh, uh, there was nobody more horrified in this country about what happened in the Robin Camp case than the judges themselves. So uh, the, the question is, who should be setting the curriculum? Who should be setting the reading list? And in our country, we have this wonderful benefit of a true democracy, which is that Canadians know they can go to court and they can say to the judge something that the government did was wrong, something that the government did was unlawful. And they know that there's a chance that the government may, sorry, the judge may agree and say the government broke the law. That is a phenomenon that many countries in the world do not have. You could not go to many courts in the world and get them to rule against the government, right? So that is called judicial independence. The ability of our judges to fearlessly rule that governments have done the wrong thing. We have to preserve not only the power of judges to do that, but we have to preserve the belief that Canadians have that if they go to court, they're going to get a fair shake. They're not just going to get a judge who's been told by Parliament what to think about things. Did Is this just another sign, uh, this uh, amendment to the legislation, is this just another sign of how our government is um, continuing on with uh, exercising political pressure on the judicial system? Because I think back to Jody Wilson-Raybould and the PMO's office and what went down there, and that's a real, uh, that, that, uh, Sean, a really um, strong spotlight on government pressure and where they shouldn't be meddling. Uh, is is this a continuation of that then? Well, I, I'm not sure that it is because we have to remember that this right now has all party support. It started as an opposition idea from the Conservative Party. It then was adopted by the current government. In yesterday's vote, the Conservatives, the NDP and the Liberals all supported this amendment adding another item to the reading list. So this has cross-party support right now. Uh, I still think it's a mistake, uh, but it's not uh, being done out of uh, partisan uh, jockeying, as far as I can tell. I think there are a lot of, like you said at the outset, well-intentioned people who are looking for uh, ways to improve uh, the judicial system in the country, but they're missing this key point, which is that what makes our system so effective and successful is that the judges are independent of the government of the day. Now, you were formerly the executive legal officer at the Supreme Court of Canada. What are you hearing from judges in, in relation to this uh, proposed bill amendment? I haven't spoken to any judges about this. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I have no doubt that they are determined to continue with the education courses that they have been taking for a long time. They want to keep 
uh, a healthy professional continuing education environment, just like every other profession has, right? Uh, and the question is just who is going to be in charge of it? They don't want to be. I, uh, look, I'm speculating here. I have not spoken to any judges about this lately. But uh, I don't think they want to be uh, chefs who are being told by the owner of the restaurant want to, what to cook, right? I mean, the, the menu should be up to them in the same way that the actual uh, performance should be, right? This is a question of who is uh, telling the judges uh, what to think about. You don't want Canadians thinking that judges are like civil servants, government officials who, who are just told what the boss, just do what the bosses tell them to do, right? Judges aren't like that. Judges are, are independent, can make up their own mind, even if it's against the interests of the government of the day. That's what we want. But if this, this um, amendment to this bill has cross-party su- support, as you say, uh, what's it going to take for, you know, to get through to the different uh, party members to let them know that this could actually, th- this could be a situation where the road to hell is paved with good intentions? It's a good question. I mean, one of the questions that arises is, if this becomes law, is it actually constitutional? And uh, that's, it, it's terrible to put judges in a situation where they're having to rule on the constitutionality of a law that's about them. Right. I mean, that's one of the signs that this is a bad law, is that a judge may one day be asked to rule on whether this law is constitutional. And that puts the judge in a very difficult position because they're deciding about their own their own profession and their own interests. Right. So you don't want that. I, I don't know what it's going to take at this point. I'm, I'm hopeful that in the Senate um, there will be some closer scrutiny of this the way there was last time around. Uh, it's a shame because there, there are other solutions. If you really want to improve judicial education in this country, there are things that need to be done that governments could legitimately help with. Uh, but this this is wrongheaded. Give us an example of something that could be done. Well, uh, the main training body, like I say, is the National Judicial Institute, and that's uh, a federal body. It gets most of its funding from the federal government. And so most of the training that it gives goes to federally appointed judges. Most of the sexual assault trials in this country are from provincial courts. Uh, and there are other bodies that try to train provincial judges, and I don't know a lot about them, but I'm sure they're doing as best they can. But uh, the real expertise in training in this country is with our federal body. So if, if more could be done to ensure that provincial court judges get the benefit of training from the leading judicial training body, the National Judicial Institute, I think we would see some real benefits from that. Gabe, I want to thank you for your time. It's been really informative. And uh, I think it's uh, it's not a topic that many people would, you know, it's not a headline that many people would see and it would jump out to them. But I think it does raise a lot of important concerns. And I'm happy that you could flesh them out for us. Well, thank you for taking an interest. Here's a great news story. When it comes to socially distancing, most of us are actually getting it. And this is according to cell phone data used by a study conducted at the University of Toronto. The report was released yesterday. And joining us on the show, Anita McGann, one of the study's authors from the university's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Anita, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So how did you obtain and use cell phone data for this study on the pandemic and our movements? Well, the the data was donated by Cubic, which is um, a marketing analytics firm in the United States that 
gathers this data uh, and uh, uh, distributed, distributes it to researchers and for humanitarian causes under a data for good program. Uh, they anonymize this data. It's all opted in. It's very heavily privatized. Uh, and uh, we were able to get access to this through some friends at GovLab at NYU. And we're thrilled to be able to use it to understand our proximity and mobility here in Canada since the beginning of the pandemic. Okay, so this is all about understanding how we're reacting and how we're adapting to the pandemic. What are the major findings of, of your study? Well, there, there are a lot of different nuances to this, but really the main finding is that, you know, during the pandemic, we had this dramatic drop in both our mobility and proximity in March. Now, there's been a recovery in mobility, and that's changed quite a bit. Our mobility has changed a lot, but there's been generally an increase in our mobility uh, during the summer, and it, that's continued into the fall. But that increase in our movement, in our, uh, in our tendency to move around, uh, has not been accomp- uh, accompanied by radical in- increases in our proximity to each other. So let me just um, um, make sure that I explain what proximity is. Proximity is the extent to which our smartphones tend to interact with other smartphones. So back at the beginning of the year on a typical weekday in Toronto, we tended to encounter about seven and a half or so cell phones per hour over about a five-minute period in Toronto. Now we're down to about three, a little less than three cell phones per hour um, on average. I'm going to ask you a technical question, and you might not be able to answer this, but does that work on Bluetooth information? Like if you have your Bluetooth off, would your phone not communicate with other phones? Do you have any idea about that? So uh, the, the way that this data is collected is from the cell phone signal to the phone. So I, I think it would um, we would capture where your cell phone is, where your smartphone is, regardless of which applications or which functions you have open on the phone. Okay. So you yeah. found out that, uh, that, that the data showed that we had, um, we'd been interacting with people and then that uh, data, the amount of people that our phones interact with on a hourly basis dropped steeply after the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 was indeed a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And what's really interesting is that we did have something of a rebound in proximity around the May-June timeframe, around Mother's Day, you know, we all remember Trinity Bellwoods Park. Um, You know, there was a creeping up as the weather got better in the May-June timeframe in our interactions with each other. But then as uh, the consequences of that became clear in Toronto, uh, we saw a further reduction. So just as you said at the outset, it is good news for Torontonians. You know, the work that we're doing to to stay socially distancing, that work is meaningful. It's showing up in the data. Now the challenge is going to be continuing that and achieving, you know, even even greater social distancing to try to control the pandemic as as this next wave starts to rise. What was the time period that you looked at the data from the cell phones to? It's January 1st through October 6th. So it's 40- Okay. All right. So we're, we're, you know, it's pretty recent as far as the data is concerned. Where are we at right now? So we're at, in Toronto, we're uh, on a typical weekday, uh, Torontonians' cell phones are interacting per hour with about two and a half other cell phones. Now on the weekends, it's lower. It's about uh, a little bit more than two cell phones per hour. So and this could well. account for even people working from home, 
This could account, this number, this low number could account for other people in their house that actually have cell phones because we all have cell phones. Even our kids have them. Oh, 100 percent. And, you know, um, the if you live in a high rise apartment building, you could even be picking up uh, the cell phone signal from a closely located neighbor. So these numbers are what's really more important than the level of the numbers is the trend in the numbers. And uh, because of the differences in the way that we live in Toronto, you know, in many high rise buildings, for example, you you know, I, I live in a high rise in Toronto where I could be picking up. Uh, approximate single from signal from the person who lives downstairs, a person I'm not interacting with. So the exact numbers are not as important as the trends. Right. And you're, I'm guessing, going to continue on with this, with this study as we continue with the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. We wanted to get these measures out there to try to encourage Canadians to continue to stay socially distanced. The work that we're doing is working. It's very important for us to continue this as this next wave um, starts to uh, uh, surge upon us. And we have to be vigilant about this as we get into the colder weather. So that that is the reason that we published this early report. Our intention is now to start to look at the economic and medical consequences of this social distancing. All right. Well, hopefully you'll uh, keep us posted on what you learn from that. And I appreciate you getting us up to speed with how well we're doing based on our cell phone data. Thank you very much for having me. Throughout this pandemic, we've had uh, several business owners on the show to talk about what they're doing in order to help people get through the pandemic safely. And I thought this was an interesting story. Treebore RX, they are out of Collingwood. They have created the first recyclable face mask in Canada, and they are uh, right now hiring some people to keep production moving here to talk about it chief executive officer of Treebor rx uh, george irwin welcome to the show thank you very much i appreciate being on on your show so did you set out what does what your company normally manufacture did you set out to manufacture masks at a certain point in the pandemic or how did this mask become uh something that you decided that you would focus on yeah, it, it's a it's a good story. Um, my company is Irwin Toy, and I'm part of the Irwin Toy family that's had a toy business for close to 94 years. Um, and uh, both my wife and I got COVID early on in early um, March, and we were told we had mild symptoms. And I can tell you, with what we had, if that's mild, I would never want to get full-blown COVID. And um, when we started to feel better, we got an email from a colleague of ours in in China who had turned one of his toy factories into making masks. And he sent Brenda, my wife, and myself an email. We were isolating, self-isolating in the house. And we read it at 2 o'clock in the morning. And that following morning when we got up, he said, did you get the email? Yeah, we did. And I said, I'm going to call the local hospital and see if they need masks. And I did. And by the end of the day, we'd sold 440,000, and by the end of the week, a million, and it just kept growing from there. And, and sort of in June, uh, we were asked um, to consider putting up a factory to make masks, and we said, yeah, we would look at it here in Collingwood. We did. And quite by chance, uh, we came across this Pro Plus mask, which is a game changer. And because of it, we decided we were going to manufacture masks in in Canada, in Ontario, at the behest of our premier, who said we would never want to go through this again. And uh, so we're here, and we're we started making masks last week. So this is a reusable mask, and that's interesting because 
Uh, I know that people can reuse their masks by washing them or they can, you know, let them uh, quarantine for a while and then reuse them again. Tell us about the properties of this mask that make it so incredible. Yeah, so it's made out of a TPE, which is a plastic, uh, it's a thermoplastic elastomizer, and it has replaceable filters. And, and the great thing about this mask is it, it forms a complete seal on, the fa- on your face. And so if you're in a health situation, you walk into one patient with the mask on, protocol says when you come out, you got to throw that mask away and put a new one on. And because of the shortage, a lot of people have been not doing that. With this mask, you just take a hand sanitizer or soap and water and wash it, and you're good for the next patient. And at the end of the day, you replace the filter, and this mask is actually reusable for 30 days. I mean, it has a longevity of 300 hours, and so on a 10-hour shift, that's really a month's worth of face mask. And uh, at the end of that, what you do is you put it in a bin and we have somebody come around to pick it up and we recycle it and pay you for, uh, for the mask, uh, a few pennies per pound. And, and uh, so it's a, it's a revenue stream for the healthcare facility as well. When you say you recycle it, do you get it to the proper people that will recycle it and turn we it into something recycler. new? Actually, yeah, we have a recycler who actually picks it, picks it up, and then they regrind it, and they turn that plastic into making cell phone covers, uh, stoppers for doors, uh, little feet for um, for chairs or tables, and it never gets it never gets used again in a mask. That's for sure. So the only thing you really do have to change is the filters for these masks, and are they quite affordable? Yeah, they are. The the filters um, are roughly thirty cents, and um, on a monthly basis, uh, when you add the filters in, the cost for the mask for the whole month is around fifteen dollars, and that per user, and that's a very inexpensive mask for a whole month's worth of uh, usage. These masks, am I describing them correctly? Uh, look a little bit like a respirator mask. They don't look like a surgical mask. They are a respirator mask, and they, and they can be used in quarantine situations, in surgical situations. They can be used for, by first responders, EMT. Uh, they can be used in the construction industry, the mining industry. They've got a lot of usages, and the beauty about the filters is that the filters can be either uh, one filter level one, level two, or level three, but you don't have to change the mask. You're gearing up for... 800,000 masks a day. So that means you're going to have to hire a whack of people and get them trained. How long do you anticipate that'll take? Well, um, we're, we'll be making two types of masks. We'll be making the Pro Plus, which is the respirator mask, and then we will be making the three-ply mask as well. And when we're up and running, uh, we'll be making roughly 700 and some odd thousand three-ply and 75 to 100,000 of the Pro Plus and we'll need between 80 and 100 people, I think, in our plant. And uh, so it's a, it's, it's a work in process because our plant is just being built out. Uh, we're in temporary facilities at the moment, but um, we're, we're making masks. And uh, it's been a, uh, a great run because uh, when this all started back in early March, I didn't think we would ever be making masks in Canada. Why didn't you think that? I just, I just wasn't. I mean, I, my head was in the toy business, right? And and, uh, but you know, when we came out of COVID, um, we realized that we had to do something because we were lucky, 
and uh, we had this opportunity with, as I mentioned earlier, this factory in China. So it all just sort of fit together, and and as we went down the path, it just became more and more clear that we were meant to do this, and and so here we are. We're we're making masks to help people in the front lines uh, stay safer. Okay, so the ProPlus masks, are they going to be limited to people that work in the frontline industries, or will anyone be able to get their hands on this mask? No, the, the, the plan is to make it available to everyone, but we know that the people who need it right now are, for instance, the long-term care facilities are, are in need of it. Uh, hospitals are finding it difficult to get respirator masks. So we're trying to supply uh, the people on the front line first, but yes, we will make it available to everyone. How will you make it available eventually? Will it be an online sales situation? Will you be selling it to retailers that then uh, can um, distribute it to people across Canada? Well, we'll have it available on uh, our website available. We we do have distributors who are just now uh, placing orders to take uh, delivery so that they can be available right across the country. And we plan to uh, eventually be shipping into the United States and Europe. We've had a lot of talk today about uh, the fact that some people haven't been wearing masks on the show. Uh, you said you and your wife had contracted COVID early on, and you thought you were told that it was a mild case of COVID. And you'd, you'd said earlier in this in this conversation that uh, if this was mild, you'd never want to get into a situation where it was any more severe. Can you speak just from a personal uh, place on how important it is that we, I understand you're making masks and selling masks now, but how important it is that we adopt these uh, safety measures that are simple, like putting on a mask? Well, I think the best example is is all you have to do is look at what's happening in Europe and, and in particular uh, in the U.S., I mean, where you see people, clusters of people not wearing masks. Or last night there was uh, people who I guess uh, had people in for Thanksgiving dinner and all of a sudden now the family's affected. Um, We are lucky. We are so lucky that we've decided to embrace the mask wearing. And um, it's a cultural shift. Um, You know, North Americans just aren't used to it. And and yet in Asia, where this all started, wearing a mask is uh, second nature. That's what, when they get a cold, they put a mask on. So I think that... um, our premier's done a great job. I think all the premiers have done a great job in, in getting us conditioned to wear masks. And I think this is going to become part of our life going forward. And uh, and we're just happy that we're able to make a mask that uh, protects people and um, and keeps them safe. George, how are you and your wife feeling now? You know, that's a great question because I think... Um, anybody who's had it will understand that you, I don't think you ever get back to 100%, but we're very close. I mean, we're very active people, and as a result of that, I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't get uh, full-blown COVID. Um, I mean, I'm 70, and so I'm in the high-risk area, and so I consider myself very lucky. Um, but, I, you know, I keep myself in reasonably good shape, and we're active, so we're lucky. And that's another reason why we thought we should do this because uh, we experienced, um, we experienced it in a way that uh, I would never want anyone to get mild symptoms, let alone the full blown COVID. Well, George, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I, uh, I wish you a speedy manufacturing of these masks and getting them out to the people that are taking care of us on a daily basis is a great thing you're doing. And it's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing it today. Well, thank you for inviting me on and I appreciate it. Everybody stay safe. Cheers. Have a great day. That is George Irwin, who is the CEO of Treebore RX. They also from the Irwin family of toys. 
and he is now uh, making a, the the first Canadian recyclable face mask. You can use it for 30 days. You just pop out the filters and change them up. Wow. I love this story. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Kelly Cutreras Show. If you can join us live, we broadcast from 9 to noon daily on 640 Toronto. Have a great day.